Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here today. Um, Looking forward to our time together as the family of faith to celebrate the Lord's table in a few moments. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to 1 Samuel 17. We're going to be looking at this passage, a very familiar passage in in a few moments. And as you turn there, I just want to share my appreciation to Pastor Dustin for standing up here and leading us in worship. It's not his first choice of things to do, but he's willing, and I appreciate that he's willing to get out of his comfort zone a little bit, and uh, it was very, um, very encouraging to to just concentrate and think through um, the majesty and gift of the cross this morning. So let's pray. Let's thank God for our time together, and also uh, just ask him through his spirit to, to bless his heart, our hearts through the, the teaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. I thank you that you are good and faithful in all of your ways. We are grateful, God, for your grace and mercy. Your mercies are new every morning. And even today, on a day like this, when we gather to celebrate the goodness of Jesus, we are grateful, Father, that you are meeting with us. And today, you have even reminded us again and again of your faithful love. So, Father, as we look into your word in these moments that we have together, that we pray that your spirit would teach us and guide us. Uh, Father, I pray that I would just be a vessel of your truth. And, Lord, that we would be challenged as we uh, consider what it means to to walk with you in a fallen world. Uh, These words before us this morning are a great encouragement. Uh, They're a great um, encouragement in that Lord, the world that we live in uh, seems to want to defeat us every step of the way, and you have already given us the victory. And so, Father, I pray that we would just see that and trust you and walk with you. And so, Father, encourage us now, and may you be glorified as we respond through the worship of your word. And we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. So just a quick question um, as we think, uh, wrap our minds around the text this morning. Uh, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Uh, maybe you're not the right person to ask, but maybe if your significant other is with you, maybe I need to ask them, are they an, oh, how would you answer, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And what I mean is, is your glass half empty or is it half full? Does every cloud have a silver lining or does every silver lining have a cloud? I mean, if you're an optimist, do pessimists find you frustratingly unrealistic? You know what I mean, right? I try to be a realist in life. Often I make calculated decisions after weighing all the options. I I want to, to know exactly as best as I can what is going to happen happen. I try not to be swayed by my emotions. And while I haven't been guilty of making rash, life-altering decisions, I do need to confess that at times I am guilty and lacking faith in the promises of God. I mean, I try to weigh all the options. I, I, I try to look at scripture. Okay, God, what is the best thing to do in this situation? I, I want to say, okay, if I do this, these are the potential outcomes. If I do that, these are the potential outcomes. And then I try to, to, to make these decisions, me plus God. And I know that at times 
I'm lacking faith to just fully trust God for what is ahead. Is there anyone else with me this morning? Or should I resign right now? (laughs) But I'm learning. And God has been infinitely faithful. As I read his word again and again, I see the evidence of miraculous faith. Those, oh my word, kind of moments in the scriptures. I also see the reminders that our faith must find a sure object. Meaning that the object of our faith must be the Lord. Not the Lord plus me. That if God has promised, God is faithful to surely bring it to pass. And as a person of faith, faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I am called to walk by faith in who he is. And what's so strange to me at times in my own journey is that I can believe and rest in the big stuff the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I, can also, and I can also struggle with the small stuff. Like, God, what's going to happen today to me? What should I do? And this morning, we were reminded of an all-too-familiar event in Scripture where amazing faith was displayed in an absolutely scary situation. It's the story of a giant named Goliath who squared off against a teenage shepherd named David. It's interesting that if you were to ask a person who has very limited knowledge of the Bible, if at all, who David and Goliath are, they would be able to at least say it's a story of the little guy coming out on top of the big guy. Right? The David and Goliath stories of our culture that we champion But as we look at the text this morning, it's going to be clear to see the story of David and Goliath is more about a big guy and a bigger God. The victory was not found in David's skill, but it was found in David's faith. David had the ability to see as God sees. And as a result, David was not intimidated. Now, there's a lot to consider in this passage. We're going to look at 58 verses this morning. How many of you think we can do it? Okay, I actually saw one hand up. Thank you, Sue. I mean, who has the faith that we can do it, right? So when I was a kid, there was a commercial for micro machines. Do you guys remember what micro machines are if you're my age or around that age, these little tiny cars and in the commercial that a guy that talked really fast on the commercials, like almost like an auctioneer, that's going to be me this morning. So you're just going to have to, to keep up because there's a lot to unpack this morning as we spend time considering the practical ramifications of this story for our lives. So turn in your Bibles to, to 1 Samuel 17. We're not going to read every verse. I'm going to highlight some things in, in, in sections of this passage If you want to go back and look at it um, on your own, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, But this this chapter in 1 Samuel was written like an amazing movie. 
I mean, it moves through scenes and movements that capture our attention. And it really awakens us to the amazing power of God that was evident in David's life. And David at this point is still a shepherd uh, as shepherding his flocks in the the wilderness outside of his father's home. He's still rather young and the text indicates that because he was not a part of the armies of Saul. So he was too young to be a volunteer or called into service into Saul's army. And David, if you remember in chapter 16, was introduced to us As the man that had God's anointing, God's anointing, the Spirit of God came upon David as Samuel visited David's family. And as Jesse, his father, brought the sons, all of the sons were passed over until David was summoned to come. And God's Spirit came upon him. And we read in the text that as God's Spirit came upon David, God's Spirit had left Saul, who was king of Israel. Now, you have to understand that dynamic as you look at 1 Samuel 17 because everyone is playing a part in what God is doing here. And it's evident to see what is happening in David's life as God is preparing this man to be a leader of God's people. And so the scene is set in the first few verses. In the first 11 verses of 1 Samuel 17, is the the challenge that comes from a foreign nation. That nation is the Philistine nation. The Philistines lived to the the south and west of Israel in the promised land. The writer of 1 Samuel sets the scene for us in the first few verses and says that the Philistines were on one side of a ravine and the nation of Israel was on the other side of the ravine. And the actual ravine of Saka and Zechariah and Ephes Damim was about a mile wide at its largest point. And so you had the Philistines on one side and the nation of Israel on the other side, and they're preparing for battle. The armies are gathered. We read in verse 2 that Saul, who was the king, and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. It's coming time to engage this enemy. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the other side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. And the valley was between them. And so you can just picture in your mind, right? One army here, one army here a valley between them, and you can just anticipate what is going to take place. And it's in that moment that we're introduced to the giant who comes from the Philistines. In verse 4, we read, then a champion. Now, the champion doesn't mean in the sense of a champion like in a sport or something like that, but really the, the word champion is used here to introduce to us a person that comes from the Philistines That is the men of men. Like he is the guy that the Philistines have. He's the ace in the hole. He's the one that is going to be used by this Philistine army to bring about the most destruction. We're introduced to this champion who came out from the armies of the Philistines and his name is Goliath. He's from Gath. His height, as the the author tells us, was six cubits in a span. Now, you all know how tall that is, right? Okay, so in our measurement, 
Goliath was nine feet, nine inches tall. He would have been a perfect NBA draftee. Right? He's huge. Nine feet, nine inches tall. He was wearing a bronze helmet on his head, was clothed with a scale of armor. The, his armor, this chain mill that he wore, weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's between 175 and 200 pounds. So he had almost 200 pounds of armor on him. And with him, around his legs, he also carried a javelin that was slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of the spear weighed 600 shekels. 600 shekels is about 25 pounds, about the weight of a shot put. This was at the end of his spear. You can just imagine the picture that's being painted that this person, this champion from the Philistines, is an adversary that nobody can beat. I mean, you look at him and, he, and you think he's the giant of all giants. How is Israel going to win a battle against him? He stood, Goliath, and shouted to the ranks of Israel. So Israel's on one mountain. The Philistines are on the other mountain. There's a valley between them, and he begins from his side of the ravine shouting to the nation of Israel. And he says to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And so the giant is speaking. And what he does is something that was customary in that culture when there was a time of war. Sometimes the nations wouldn't go to battle every person against every person. Sometimes they would just duel. And there would be an agreement in that duel. This guy versus this guy. Whoever wins, the other people lose. And Goliath stands in his certainty of his power and strength and says, I defy you to find a man who can beat me. And he calls Israel out. And remember, this is the nation of Israel that throughout their history has seen the miraculous power and hand of God work on their behalf. The very fact that they're in this land of promise is because God had delivered them by the hands of their enemies and given them the land that he said is theirs. And we know who's there, right? The king is there. King Saul, who when we were introduced to him earlier, and we talked about this a few weeks ago in 1 Samuel, when Saul was introduced, he was chosen to be a man that was heads and shoulders better than any other man externally. He's a big dude himself. He's not quite nine feet, nine inches tall, but he's one of the biggest guys in Israel. I mean, they looked at him as the person of strength that could lead them because that's what they wanted. And what do we read about this king? And what do we read about his warriors? When they heard Goliath's challenge, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They were fearful. 
Fear gripped them. How many of you have had moments and seasons in your life where fear has gripped you? Like you couldn't see the next step in front of you because you were so afraid of what it might bring. Now, one of the dangers in 1 Samuel 17 with David versus Goliath is to spiritualize this passage to mean everything in every situation that it's always David versus Goliath. And we want to be careful not to do that. But there are principles for us to see as we consider the actions of Israel, the actions of the giant, and the actions by faith of a man named David. We've all been in moments where we were dismayed and greatly afraid. What are we going to do? What's interesting is in this passage, nobody on God's side is considering, let's pray, let's worship, let's remember the goodness of God. They only see the giant in front of them and they are overwhelmed with fear. And so, in verses 12 through 19, we're introduced to David. He comes onto the scene. David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse. Same introduction as we read in 1 Samuel 16. David was working his, Saul's, or his, his father's flocks, Jesse's flocks, in the, the fields. His brothers, the three oldest brothers, were off to war. They were about 15 miles apart at this point from where this battle was going to take place and where David was taking care of his father's flocks. And so his dad, concerned for his three oldest sons, sent David as a messenger to check in. And not only to check in, but we read in the text that he sent David with some gifts. And he says, hey, David, bring these gifts not only for your brothers, but bring them also for the, the, the generals that are in charge because, hey, we want to make sure that they're not, if, if we can kind of sweeten them, sweeten the pot, like they'll be off to the side and they won't be right in the middle of harm's way. And so David goes and he goes back and forth. 15 miles one way, 15 miles another way. And he gave a report. 15 miles one way, 15 miles another way and gave a report. And we read in verse 16 that as he's going back and forth, the Philistine, Goliath, came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. So twice a day for 40 days, Goliath would be yelling from the ravine, send me your champion." And the nation of Israel is on the mountaintop wondering, what are we going to do? Now, what's interesting is it's 40 days. And if you read the scriptures, what you find out is that this, this idea of 40 days is repeated often. And there's often in the scriptures 40 days of testing. It's a testing period. Jesus was tested in the wilderness. We get the sense that there's something in this that God is saying to the nation of Israel, are you going to believe me? Are you going to trust me? 
Are you going to rest in who you know I am? And for 40 days, twice a day, Goliath is yelling and shouting, and they don't get it. They're not trusting God. They're not believing God. And then Jesse, in verse 17, said to his son David, Take now for your brothers these things. Give them to the commander of their thousand, so that he might look out for their welfare. And he says, Because Saul and all the men of Israel are fighting in this valley against the Philistines. For 40 days, they knew what was happening. And so what does David do in verses 20 and following? He goes. And when he goes and he gets there and he sees what's going on, he leaves everything aside. And he comes up to the the front lines of the battle. This eager teenager wants to see, okay, what is this all about? What's going on here? He hears the war cries. Army against army. David left his baggage with the baggage keeper and ran into the battle lines. And as he was talking with the, the, the people that were a part of Saul's army, the champion, the Philistine named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines and he spoke these same words, the same words of challenge. Send me your champion so that we might fight. But you know what's interesting about verse 23? It might seem minor in the text, but it's a big indicator of what's about to happen. The last phrase of verse 23 says, and David heard them. See, now David's hearing the words from the giant. Till this point, everyone in Israel and Saul had heard these words, and it was Uh, They were words full of fear and dismay and trouble and what's going to happen. David enters the scene, goes to the front line of the battle. David hears the words of Goliath. And when all the men of Israel, verse 24, saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. Then the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And so they see Goliath coming and and David's inquiring. He's wanting to know, like, what's happening here, guys? Why is this taking place? And as he's inquiring about Goliath, he hears from the people a part of Saul's army, that if a champion does fight against Goliath and wins, the king of Israel, Saul, promises that that man can marry his daughter, which means he'll be brought into his family, he'll be given great riches, and his family will be able to live tax-free in the land. His father's house will be free in the land. And so there's quite an incentive to slay this giant. But for 40 days and 40 nights, nobody is responding to the challenge. Nobody was hearing the incentive and thinking it's worth the fight. Nobody was. And then verse 26. And I I believe verse 26 is really the central passage to this whole chapter. Then David spoke. And you know what's interesting when we read, then David spoke? These are the first recorded words of David in all of Scripture. Now, we were introduced to him in in chapter 16. He didn't speak, though, in in a recorded way. 
Here we have his first recorded words. What does he say? He says to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? I mean, it's about time somebody stands up and says, We don't fight for ourselves. We fight on behalf of the living God. But isn't that what it's like when we face giants in our life? When we can't even see the next step in front of us, we forget that we are children of the living God. And it takes great faith to look beyond the circumstances, to look beyond the fear, and to see that we're not doing this on our own. And I even get the sense, as David says this in verse 26, he's not just casually saying, for who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Like, there's a sense of indignation. There's a sense that David is standing as a teenager amongst all of these army people, these soldiers. Like, listen up, guys. Who's going to stand on behalf of the living God that we know and trust? Why aren't any of you standing? And David, in great faith, puts himself in the position And believing God, that he can trust that God will deliver and give victory over the greatest obstacles that we see. And so the people answer him in accord with this word saying, thus it will be done for the man who kills him. All the things they said, all of the good benefits. Now in verses 28 through 30, as this is going on, we have David's oldest brother, Eliab, there, who was also there in 1 Samuel 16, as he was the first that was inspected by Samuel, and Samuel thought, this is the one, we're going to anoint him, he's going to be the king, and God said to Samuel, nope, pass by. Now all of his brothers wouldn't have quite understood what was going on in that moment when David was anointed, but they know that he was passed by. So what does Eliab, the oldest brother, say? Well, his anger burned against his brother David and said, Why have you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I mean, he's just like, come on, David. Grow up. Right? When we hear what we are called to have childlike faith, that seems great and wonderful until you walk through a few seasons of life, right? And then you think, no. No. Life's too hard. Reality hits and we think, wait until they get some experience and really see how hard life is. And Eliab is saying, listen, what are you doing here? You're just a child. And David says to his brother, what have I done now? Was it not just the question? Like, what are you guys going to do? I mean, his brother Eliab in verse 28 he charges him with insolence and wickedness in his heart for showing up. And David said, what have I done? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing, and the people answered the same thing as before. So his brother's challenging his motive. He's like, you're just in it for yourself, David. And David's like, no, I'm here for the glory of God. I'm here for the name of God to defend him. Because the giants that we often face are the ones that are tearing down the name of God. And who's going to stand up? 
Who's going to defend the name of the Lord? And you might say, God doesn't need to defend his name. Well, sure, in and of himself, God doesn't need to defend his name. But, oh my, his people cannot run away in fear every time someone challenges who he is. And so the word gets back to King Saul in verses 31 and following. And he sends for David. He knows that someone showed up and someone's willing to enter the fight. I mean, this has gone on for 40 days. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And so Saul is thinking, okay, we got someone. That someone comes before him. Saul looks at the someone and says, oh my gosh, it's a teenager. It's a shepherd. And David says, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go. You're but a youth while he's been a warrior since his youth. He has experience. He has the pedigree. You have nothing, David. So what does David do in the following verses? Well, he goes back to his own resume as a shepherd. And what did he do as a shepherd in defending the flocks that were under his care? He fought off a lion and a bear. Now listen, I don't know. I I know I couldn't. But this skilled shepherd, even as a teenager, fought off a lion by grabbing its beard and giving it a haymaker and a bear. And he struck both of them and killed both of them. Verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Do you see that? Do you see where David's confidence comes from? It's not his ability to kill an animal. It's his ability and desire to stand up for the name of God. And when he stands up for the name of God, he believes with such faith and courage that God is on my side and God will not let me down. And this is not blind faith. It's not childish faith. It is confident faith in knowing that the God of the angels' armies will defend him as he is defending the Lord. And so what does Saul do? Well, he says, go and may the Lord be with you. I think this isn't quite a benediction of, I trust that God's going to be with you. But I think Saul is thinking, okay, God be with you. Because I don't see how you can make it. So what does Saul do in these final verses at 38 through 40? He gives David his armor. I mean, that seems like the right thing for a king to do. The problem is that Saul is a man of men in Israel, and he's quite bigger than David. David looks at the armor, and he's like, I can't, I can't go with this. I haven't tested it. It doesn't fit. How am I going to go against a nine-foot, nine-inch giant? And I don't even know if what you're giving me will be a help to me. It made me think of when I was a, uh, a young dad 
Uh, we lived in our first house and Levi would get up really early in the morning, like super early, like ungodly hours early. And this is a great parenting tip. It's really not. It's just how we did it. We'd get up, we would bring him downstairs, we would set him down and turn on VeggieTales. And then we would lay on the couch, barely holding on. But playing VeggieTales all the time, there's this David and Goliath story in the VeggieTales, and there's this song, He's Big, God is Bigger. I was going to play it this morning, but I didn't want to ruin your day as having that thing stuck in your mind. But well, I was reading this passage, and I'm reading about this armor, and, and, and they, they do a wonderful job of, of, of bringing this passage to life. And I just imagine this little teenager wearing this big king's armor, thinking like he can't even stand. And so what does David say in verse 40? He's like, listen, I'll take care of this giant the way I know how to take care of him. He took a stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And these stones weren't just small pebbles. The stones were probably the size of baseballs. And he put them in his pouch as a shepherd, and he went out to face the Philistine. And so in verses 41 through 47, they have their showdown, David and Goliath. The Philistine came on, approached David with the shield bearer that was in front of him. Goliath had a shield bearer, someone that went before him that that had a shield big enough to protect him. So Goliath's going out, his shield bearer's before him, they go out, he approaches David, and when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. Why? Because he was but a youth, ruddy, handsome in appearance. Same description that we found out in 1 Samuel 16. David's just a young whippersnapper. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come with me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine, Goliath, looks at David and is like, Is this the best you got? I'm offended. And so he curses David by his gods. One of the prevalent Philistine gods was the god Dagon. And he likely incursed a a curse on on David through that god's name. And so really behind the backdrop of David and Goliath, you have Dagon or Dagon and, and the true God. You have the true and living God facing off against these false gods. And so the Philistine says to David, come to me and I will give you your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. He has so much confidence that he knows that David is a goner. And what does David say to the Philistine? Well, this is the second key to this passage. You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have taunted. David's had enough. Listen, the giants of our life are going to come to us and they're going to taunt us. But they're not only taunting us, but they're taunting the living God. Because really, in those moments, as we are walking with God, we come to those moments where we have to understand the battle isn't just the giant in us, but it's the giant and the God that we believe in and are resting in and trusting in. And are we going to be able to be confident that he can deliver us in the face of these giants. This day, 
the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will, I will strike you down, and I will remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may, be, may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give it into your hands. That he wants not only for himself, he wants not only for the Philistines, he wants the armies of God, the nation of Israel to know, his brothers, listen, God is going to give us the victory. God has given us the victory. And he looks Goliath right in the eyes and he says, I'm going to cut your head off and you're going to lose. And he's got great faith. And so it happened in verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. The tension is building. Now it's time for action. And what do we see? What do we find out? Well, you know, we, we think, right, he just took the rock, slung it against his head, and, and Goliath fell dead. It wasn't just that, though. If you look, we read, David put his hand in his bag, took the stone, slung it, struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone, which is the size of a baseball, sank into his forehead. He fell on his face to the ground. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the battle. Verse 50 indicates what happens. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. And as the Philistine, Goliath, is laying on the ground after being knocked out from the stone to his head, what does he do in verse 51? David ran and stood over the Philistine and took Goliath's sword, which is almost like a a scimitar. It was a curved blade sword. He drew it out of the sheath and killed him, and he cut off his head with it. He took the, the stone, slung it into his head, The giant fell over. David ran over, grabbed his own sword, and cut off his own head with it. Then the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines. Like they finally get a little bit of courage, right? Because remember Goliath's challenge earlier. He says, whoever wins, the others have to be servants. The losers have to be servants. Well, that didn't happen here. The Philistines didn't say to Israel, okay, we will be your servants. They ran off, and Israel chases after them. And the sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their, their camps. And verse 54 is more of a parenthetical statement. Then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. So, Some have wondered, did David go right to Jerusalem? It's likely he didn't because Jerusalem wasn't Jerusalem yet. 2 Samuel chapter 5 is when Jerusalem becomes Jerusalem. That's when David goes in as king of Israel and he takes Jerusalem back for Israel. It's in foreign hands right now. So he didn't likely go in. Now, here's what I don't know. the, The embalming techniques. What do you do with this head for so long? We don't know. 
But we do know that David did bring Saul's head as a trophy of God's faithfulness. Or Goliath's head. Now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistines, he says to Abner, who's the commander of his army, who's this man? But he doesn't really know. Like, he was introduced to him, but he's like, who is this guy? And this is why I said last week, the end of chapter 16 likely came after the events of chapter 17 and not before because Saul doesn't seem to quite know who David is. And so Abner says, well, this is who he is. He's the son of this man. Well, we made it through the text. Yeah, thank you. Um, But as we close, I want you to see, right, all throughout this passage, that the victory David secured wasn't in anything that he did except believe in God. Everyone else in the family of faith exhibited fear. There was no trust. There was no worship. There was no prayer. They were afraid in what they saw. They were afraid of the giant. We all have giants in our lives. I don't know what yours are. Giants that taunt us for what seems like forever. Giants that mock our God. And giants that cause us to be afraid. And that fear paralyzes us in finding true victory. Fear causes us to retreat. But faith in the living God gives us victory. Our victory isn't found in our skill. It's not in our ability to fight well. It's not in the defense plan that we come up with. It's not in all of the effort and energy that we put into it. Our victory is found in the faith we have in the living God. And I'd like to say to you this morning that if you have giants in your life, what's holding you back from trusting God? And I would say that most likely what's holding you back is you. Do you believe that God has already given you the victory? Because the word of God tells us just that. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. The enemies may taunt, but our faith is in the living God who gives us the victory through the power of his name. And maybe as you think of David and Goliath, you're thinking for the first time that, okay, God, you can do this. It's not just a story in a book that we read to children. But this was a real man who exhibited real faith in, this, in the midst of great challenging circumstances. And because he believed God, God gave him the victory. He can do that for you. But it begins with the step. The first step to acknowledge that, he is great, that God is greater than you. And he will give you the victory that you need over all the giants that you face. So I want to pray for you right now. And as we close in prayer and think about the Lord's table, table, I can't think of any better reflection and, and remembrance of victory than what's before us. And as we uh, finish in prayer, 
Paul May is going to come up and share some thoughts from the Word of God. And I'd like to invite our elders to come up uh, as well as we prepare to celebrate this table. So would you pray with me?